0: a seat and grab a Bible and hold on tight. About to get started. Luke chapter 12 is where we find ourselves on this Lord's Day morning. Here at Pickle Baptist Church, we believe the Bible is true, every word of it. Life-giving and profitable for those who filled with God's Spirit and understand it. And so we go And work our way through books of the Bible a little bit at a time. And today we found ourselves in Luke chapter 12. We'll be reading from verse 13 down to verse 21. Seeking to know this God who has revealed himself in his word. Luke chapter 12, beginning at verse 13. If you're not familiar with the Bible or if you need a Bible, there should be one in the pew in front of you. And if you're using one of the black ones, you'll find Luke 12 on page 871. Chapter numbers are the big numbers, verse numbers are the little ones. We'll be starting to read in verse 13, the bottom left-hand corner of the church Bible. We're going to read the passage, ask for the Lord's help on our time together, and then we will get started working our way through this a little bit at a time. Luke 12, verse 13. Hear now the word of the Lord. Someone in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man who made me judge or arbitrator over you. And he said to them, Take care, and be on your guard against all covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable saying, the land of a rich man produced plentifully. He thought to himself, what shall I do? For I've nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I'll do this. Tear down my barns, build larger ones. There I'll store all my grain and my goods. And I'll say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, Drink, be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Let's pray. Lord, it is truly you that we need, truly you that we want. Please see us now. Look upon us in love. Grant to us your Holy Spirit and understanding from your word. Teach us. Reveal Jesus to us and let us see him. And let our hearts be lifted in awesome wonder of who he is and what he has done. Please be with us now. If there's anything in my notes which is unhelpful, Lord, I pray that your people would forget it. But in this text, what is helpful and useful, may it be committed to memory, written upon the heart, that may bear fruit for the glory of your Son and the advance of your gospel. pray this in Jesus' name. Pick what Baptist said, amen. Well, the wisest man who ever lived was also one of the richest men who ever lived, and he wrote a few things about money that almost no one believes. He wrote, He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. When goods increase, they increase who eat them. And then, how many people read that? in the book of Ecclesiastes, and then go play the lottery. The Bible teaches that money and possessions are objects for worship, and that they make terrible objects of worship. That money and possessions are tools, and they're tests, and they make terrible gods. You see, money and possessions are a little bit like water. When they're moving, flowing through one's life, they're good, healthy, even life-giving. But like water, when they're not moving, when they're not flowing out, they grow bacteria, parasites, and harbor all sorts of evil. Luke chapter 12, verse 13 to 21 feels a bit like an interruption. And in some ways it is. If you were with us last week, you remember that Jesus has been teaching a large crowd about fearing God and not fearing man. And in the middle of this large crowd, someone just blurts out, Teacher, tell my brother to deal with me rightly and give me my inheritance. It's a bolder quest. And Jesus uses it as an occasion to teach on possessions. And as I was studying this passage last week, I really struggled to figure out how it was that this passage is connected to what came before it. And the more I stared at the text, the more we get to see that these, these two passages stuck next to each other actually are connected. And while this fellow's demand may may have been an interruption, it wasn't a distraction. On the surface, fear of man and faith and possessions don't seem to be connected, but underneath, they are. And I hope that you'll see that as we go along. Here's the big idea this morning. Your life does not consist in the abundance of your possessions, So, guard against all covetousness and store up riches toward God. That your life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. So, guard against all covetousness and store up riches toward God. This passage comes in two parts. Rather easy to see that. Jesus uses this interruption to teach his followers to guard against covetousness. And then the Lord tells a parable to illustrate the purpose of possessions. At the end today, we will consider what Jesus means about being rich toward God. So let's get to work. Let's look again at verses 13 to 15, where Jesus teaches us to guard against all covetousness. someone in the crowd says to Jesus, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Jesus says to him, Man, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? And then he says to them, probably to the whole crowd, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. If you've been following along with us in the church's one-year Bible reading plan, last month you read in the book of Deuteronomy about a law called the law of primogeniture. In the law that God gave to his people Israel, he told them that the firstborn son, would receive a double portion of the father's estate upon the father's passing. That the firstborn would receive twice as much of an inheritance as the siblings. So if if a man had two sons, the estate would be divided into three parts and the firstborn son would get two parts and the secondborn son would Get one part. And there was a reason for this. The oldest son would take on additional responsibilities upon the father's death. That he was the new patriarch of the family. That he would inherit his father's land and he would carry on his father's lineage. Well, he may even need to take care of his mother if she's still living. He may need to take care of his unmarried sisters or widowed sisters. It was a social program that made sure that the land would remain in the care of those to whom God had given it. It was a social program to make sure that the vulnerable would be provided for. And this was the right of the firstborn to receive double inheritance. Now, the firstborn could, he could reject that. He could even sell it if he wanted, like Esau did for a bowl of soup. And in the case that is being brought before Jesus, a man comes, and he's the younger brother, clearly, and he tells Jesus, you need to tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. We're not told why. Perhaps this man's older brother refused to give him his portion of the inheritance, Or maybe this man just felt entitled to more than he got. We don't know. Well, you do wonder, don't you, whether or not the man's older brother is actually in the crowd with him? (laughs) I I like to think he is. I mean, I'm I'm the oldest brother in my family. I sort of know how these things go down, right? I'm familiar with the dynamic. Mom! Well, all we know that there's a man who has died and his kids are arguing over what they get of his stuff a situation that is all too common in human history. I read one account of one family when the wealthy father died. The estate attorney entered the home to find post-it notes with names written on them all over everything. When Cornelius Vanderbilt died, his massive fortune was fought over by his children for years in court. It cost millions of dollars. But the greatest expense was relational And isn't that always the case? Well, it's a bold request, whatever the reason. The man tells Jesus Christ what to do. Divide. Tell my brother to do this. Tell him to divide it up. He tells Jesus Christ what to do, which rarely works out well. And the Lord refuses to get involved. He says, I came to preach the gospel, not to arbitrate over family estates. He says, Man, who made me judge or arbitrator over you? And that word man here isn't the, like the slang way we use it, like, Man, get out of here. It's, it's mostly a statement, it's a form of address given to strangers. Like, I don't know who you are, man. And Jesus turns this interruption into a teaching moment. And so he turns either to his disciples or to everyone. And he says, take care, and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. You see, this man believes this was about family justice. But Jesus showed him that this this is about covetousness. We considered this text last fall, when we worked our way through the Ten Commandments, and if you remember... The tenth commandment is, you shall not covet. And when we did that series, we learned that coveting means craving, yearning for, desiring for something that belongs to someone else. And from Jesus' words here, we learn four things about coveting. Four things about coveting. Number one, coveting is something that we must Guard ourselves against. Coveting is something we must guard against, which means that coveting is dangerous. It also means that coveting can be deceptive if you have to guard against it. The second thing we learn about coveting is that it comes in various forms. Did you notice Jesus says, guard yourselves against all covetousness. So, that means that coveting has many different forms. Third, coveting has to do with possessions. For Jesus says, your life doesn't consist in the abundance of your possessions. And finally, we learn that coveting is a lessening of God's purposes for your life. That coveting is a lessening of God's purposes for your life, that when you covet, you reduce your fruitfulness in God's kingdom, or you'll reduce your effectiveness in God's purposes. So for this man, his issue was a matter of money, a matter of possessions, a matter of dollars and cents. Ah, but for Jesus, this was about this man's heart. And church, this is something that we all need to know about money and possessions. It is never about dollars it sins, but it is always about the heart. Later in Luke chapter 12, Jesus says, Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Few things expose spiritual health than how we handle money money coming into our lives, money being taken out of our lives is like a medical screening for our soul. This is what I meant earlier when I said that money and possessions are objects used for worship and that they make terrible objects of worship. Money and possessions are are meant to be leveraged for God's kingdom. And to illustrate this principle, Jesus tells a parable. A parable is a story that teaches a lesson. And that parable starts in verse 16. Let's read it again. And Jesus told them a parable saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, What shall I do? Nowhere to put all my crops. And he said, I'll do this. I'll tear down my barns and I'll build larger ones. And there I'll store all my grain and my goods. In the abundance of possessions, which is something that I believe fellow Americans we must commit to memory. Perhaps it would be wise to write upon our credit cards that our life does not consist in the abundance possessions. So Jesus tells this parable, tells us to envision a rich man whose crop was abundant. This is a bumper crop. It was an unusually abundant harvest, which, by the way, is not immediately a negative thing. It's just a thing. The Bible teaches that everything comes from God. Abundant crops, wealth, and riches. The Bible even teaches that the ability to enjoy riches comes from God. From God's perspective, riches aren't inherently wrong. There are several wealthy men in the Bible. The Apostle Paul didn't say that money is the root of all evil. He said that the love of money is a root of all evil. You see, money can be a good thing when it is aligned to God's purposes. It's a tool. It can be effective when it's used for the right reasons. It's like a ruler. A ruler Can measure and draw straight lines, but if you use a ruler for different purposes, like as a hammer or an axe, it'll ruin the edge. No longer be useful as a ruler. So the rich man, whose crop produced bountifully, is neither good nor bad. And perhaps he's just a good farmer. The Lord gave him a good crop, but it was a test. It was like weight added to the bed of the truck, testing the suspension. Money tests the structure of a soul. Plenty of people supported the Lord Jesus in his ministry. So he needed a treasurer. And do you know who he chose to make his treasurer? Judas, who was a thief. And Jesus, who reads man's heart, knew Judas was a thief and still put him in charge of the money as a test. So the man has a big crop, which is neither good nor bad, it's just a test. And this is when things go sideways. He thinks to himself, verse 17, well, what am I going to do? Bumper crop, I got all this crop and I've nowhere to put them. Well, here's what I'll do. Tear down my old barns. I'll build bigger ones where I'll store all my crops. And then he says to his soul, soul, look, look at all you have. You got crops for years. Relax, eat, drink. Be merry. Notice the way that Jesus phrases this man's conversation with himself. It is my crops, my barns, my grain, my goods, my soul. He's even dialoguing with himself. Giving himself counsel. And so here we see one of the grave dangers of money and possessions. Keep your finger at Luke chapter 12 and turn with me to the Old Testament, to Deuteronomy chapter 8. Deuteronomy chapter 8. If you're using one of the church Bibles, we'll be reading from page 153. Picture. Verse 11, about middle way through the left hand column. So, the man Moses, the leader of Israel, has led God's people for 40 years in the wilderness, and they're about to cross the Jordan River and go into the land that God had promised to them. And Moses is an old man at this point. He practically raised these people for 40 years in the wilderness, and he's not going to lead them. Joshua is going to lead them. And the book of Deuteronomy is, in large part, Moses' final words to God's people as they prepare to cross the Jordan River into the promised land. And listen to what he says to them in Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 11 and following. Take care lest you forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments and his rules and his statutes, which I command you today, lest when you have eaten and are full and have built good houses and live in them, And when your herds and flocks multiply and your silver and gold is multiplied and all that you have is multiplied, then your heart be lifted up and you forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, who led you through the great and terrifying wilderness with its fiery serpents and scorpions and thirsty grounds where there is no water, who brought you water out of the thirst, the flinty rock, who fed you in the wilderness with manna that your fathers did not know that he might humble you and test you and do good to you in the end. Verse 17, Beware, lest you say in your heart, My power and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. You see, the danger of money and possessions is that they tempt us to believe that we have earned these things, and thus they belong to us, and that we are free to do with them whatever we like. And so, church, beware when you hear your heart say to you, My power and the might of my hand have got me these things. The rich man in the parable says, these are my crops and they go in my barns. That's where I store my grain and my goods to give my soul rest. And there is zero acknowledgement of God. Now were these things his in this parable? They were so far as the Lord gave them to him. And that's just the thing, isn't it? It was the Lord who gave these things to him. After all, who made the soil? Who made the seed that became the crop? Who gave the sun and the rain? Who gave strength and wisdom to cultivate the field? Who gave the trees that became the wood that built the barn? It was the Lord. And notice who is absent from this man's conversation with himself about his finances. You see, building bigger barns was not the problem. Amassing grain and goods was not the problem. The problem was what this man believed these things were for. He believed that they were for him and that they stopped with him. What he owned was not being used in the worship of God, but what he owned were being worshipped as God. Money and possessions flow into our lives by God's good grace. When they stop there, they poison our souls. Money and possessions are meant to flow into our lives in order to be leveraged for God's good purposes. To meet our needs, to care for those we're privileged to care for, and to serve the advance of the gospel. None of that is mentioned in this man's assessment of what to do with his bumper crop. No, after his abundant crop, he turns into a hedonist, a proper Epicurean. Relax, eat, drink, chill. His pleasure became the purpose of his possessions. And in his mind... His riches came from him, and therefore his riches were for him. And his words may as well serve as a mantra for the modern man. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. Maximize pleasure and minimize pain. Church money and possessions are objects for worship, but they are not objects of worship. They are tools by which we seek the enjoyment and satisfaction of our provider. They are tools by which we help others. They are tools by which we provide for others. They are tools by which we serve the advance of the gospel. And listen to the Lord's own assessment of this man and his brand new barns. Fool. In his own eyes, he was a success, but in his creator's eyes, he was a fool. He lacked common sense, understanding, and reason. He was no fool in the farming. He was no fool in the planning. He's no fool in saving. He's a fool in not dealing with God. He spoke to his soul, but not to the Lord of his soul. So his creator says, this night your soul is required of you. That word required is the same word the Lord used back in chapter 6, someone takes something from you don't require it back this night this man's soul was required of him think of a a, a bank collector coming to collect on a loan so here we see the connection to fear in the first part of chapter 12 if you're still in Luke 12 look at verse 5 which we considered last week. Jesus says, I warn you whom to fear. Fear him, who after he is killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. And so friends, heed the lesson of this parable. That one day your soul will be required of you. That one day you will give an account to God for your life. For your money and possessions. For the goods that came to you by God's good grace. And friend, I hope you know before that day that those good gifts, money and possessions which have come to you from God do not belong to you. You are not an owner. You are a caretaker. You are not a container. You are a conduit, you are not a storage unit, you are a steward. What money and possessions you have are tools to be leveraged for God's glory and the good of others in the advance of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so beware of the deceitfulness of riches because your life does not consist in the abundance of your possessions, that your life is a stewardship of money and possessions. You are but a manager of these things. And so may we all pray that the Lord would make us faithful as managers of his goods. For everyone to whom much is given, much will be required. Money and possessions are tools and they are tests. And so it should be a regular practice in your own life to see where you might be able to draw a straight line between what you own and God's glory. To draw a straight line between your goods and the advance of God's gospel. How is your money and possessions being leveraged to meet your needs, to care for others, and to advance the gospel to the ends of the earth? And remember, this is not about dollars and cents. It is a matter of what? The heart. It is a matter of the heart. I'm afraid that many of us have let ourselves believe that if we only had a little bit more, then we would be generous. If I only had a little bit more, then I would do good for others. If I only had just a little bit more, then I would do what God has required of me. But friends, covetousness and greed are not sins of the rich. They are sins of the poor as well. The one who is faithful in little will be faithful in much. Luke 16:10. You see, it's never a matter of how much you have or how much you don't have. It's an understanding that what you have comes from the Lord and belongs to him ultimately and meant to be used for his glory of which we will give account. Our job as stewards is to be faithful before God with what we have as we use our whole lives for his glory for the good of others and the advance of his gospel and so it is that an itemized expense report of your checking account is a confession of your faith and it is more honest than the words you speak An itemized spending account of your checking account is a statement of your faith. So if you're here and you're not a Christian, I'm glad you came today. I wonder if you see the kindness of God in bringing you here today to show you how serious these things are. That your life really matters to God. No, it really does. You might not consider yourself a religious person, oh, but I promise you that you are. You see, the Bible teaches that covetousness is idolatry. So craving and desiring, wanting something that belongs to someone else is the same as bowing down to statues. It's the same as offering fruits and vegetables and animal sacrifices to idols of wood and stone. Idolatry is simply looking to someone or something other than God to give you something that only God can give you. And so when you look at your money and your possessions to give you a sense of security, power, influence, happiness, friend, it is idolatry. And what I'm saying here is that you are very religious. You are an idol worshiper. And in the Bible, the penalty for idol worship is death. But the good news is that even though you have committed the sin of idolatry that carries the death penalty, you can be forgiven because one God, the Son, Jesus Christ, went to the cross and he died in the place of idolaters. That he took the penalty, the death penalty, deserved by idolatry died and they laid him in a grave and God raised him from the dead three days later. And when you turn from your sin to Jesus Christ, asking for mercy, God is faithful and just to forgive you of all your sin and to cleanse you of unrighteousness. And so I would encourage you, my non-Christian guest, do that today. Turn from your sin, turn to Jesus Christ, repent and believe. After the service is over here, tell someone that you'd like to become a Christian. We'll we'll pray with you. We'll begin meeting with you, teaching you more about how to live a life free of idolatry. Pickle Baptist, when your soul is required of you, these things which you have acquired in your life, whose will they be? Will it be clear to anyone what you have has been or will be leveraged in the advance of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Do your money and your possessions reflect a heart whose treasure is in itself or treasure that is in heaven? The lesson of this parable comes at the end where Jesus says, So it is with the one who lays up treasure. For himself but is not rich toward God. We'll end our time together considering the phrase rich toward God. If you have your Bible open, please go to 1 Timothy chapter 6. 1 Timothy chapter 6, page 994 is where you'll find the passage we'll be reading if you're using the church Bible. We'll be reading verses 17 to 19. This passage teaches that your life is more than the acclamation of wealth and possessions. That one day when your, soul, when your life is over, your soul will be required of you and these things which you have accumulated, whose, whose will they be? In other words, that when you die, you can't take anything with you, but you can sure send it on ahead of you. You can't take anything with you into the next life. Oh, but Christian, you can sure send them ahead of you. The Apostle Paul is eminently helpful at this point, teaching us that laying up treasure for yourself is the height of folly, but being rich toward God is the height of wisdom. So he says, verse 17, addressing the rich, as for the rich in this present age, charge them, Pastor Timothy, not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good and to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that, notice this, they may take hold of that which is truly life. The Apostle Paul is saying the same thing as Jesus, that riches are deceptive and that money lies. It promises the life you want, but it can't deliver on that promise. It promises security, happiness, but it can't deliver on those either. Early in First Timothy chapter 6, Paul warns that those who desire to be rich fall into temptation. They desire, their desire to have lots of money plunges them into ruin and destruction. They keep trying to squeeze out of money things that money just cannot provide. For my nerdy friends, it's a bit like the dwarves in the Lord of the Rings where they kept mining deeper and deeper into the mountain until they awoke the demon. Our desire for riches does the same thing. It keeps causing us to mine money for things it can't get, and it awakens a demon. So Paul tells the rich, don't set your hope on riches, set your hope on God. And he tells the rich, To do good works to be generous to be ready to share that when they do they're storing up for themselves real riches a foundation for the future the real future heaven and when they do they they're able to take hold of that which is truly life do you hear what paul is saying here that the life that you want can come through money and possessions The life that you want comes through a life that is fully surrendered to Jesus Christ, a life leveraged for his glory and for his gospel. The life that you want comes to you through Christ, who 2 Corinthians says, though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor so that by his poverty you might become rich. The gospel tells us that You were in Christ when he died on the cross. That you were in him when he was laid in the grave. And that you were in him when God raised him from the dead. And that because he left everything, you have gained everything. That because of him, you have been brought to God, reconciled with God, have peace with God, and life eternal. Which is a reality that starts now that our heavenly Father has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places. Friend you are rich beyond your wildest imaginations. How about that the only trouble is is that what we have and maybe even more so what we don't have feels more real to us than what we actually have in Christ, in heaven. The reality is that what you have, the riches that you have, are more real than the riches you have here or the riches you don't have here. so we have to train our souls to constantly be asking, is this real? Since I've already spoken to the nerds, I'll speak more to the nerds. If you have read the book series, The Hunger Games, at the end, one of the characters named Up, he was tortured with some like mind stuff. And it messed him up real bad. And at the end of the book series, he keeps having to ask, the battle has been won, all the wars are over, and, and Peter keeps having to ask, real or not real? What he has suffered in the past has affected his ability to discern what is real and not real in the present. And the same is true of us. Because of sin on our heart and the effects in our lives, we have a difficult time with discerning what is real or not real. And so, let me tell you what's real. Riches, security, and happiness are in Christ and nowhere else and that every threat to your well-being has been removed, and that every danger for ultimate harm has been eliminated. Because Jesus Christ was made poor for your sake, you have been made rich for his glory. And that will never change. Here is what is real. Christian, you are free from having to squeeze out of money and possessions something that money and possessions cannot give you. That you are free from having to squeeze out of them power, security, safety, happiness, That you are free to spend your lives on the advance of the gospel and the good of others without ever running out. Here is what is real. The battle against sin and death has been won. And so therefore you are free from coveting, free from greed. Free from the thought that your life consists in the abundance of your possessions. Free to know that because of Jesus Christ on the cross, your life is Christ. Free from seeking satisfaction in people and possessions. Free to find the true source of satisfaction in Jesus Christ. That's what it means to be rich toward God. To have your soul so satisfied in Jesus Christ that you are invulnerable. To spend and to be spent for his sake with that fear of being misused or running out. Free from the lies of money, free to spend and be spent for his glory, free to give your life for the advance of the gospel in Piqua, Miami County, and to the ends of the earth. One day, Piqua Baptist Church, your soul will be required of you. You can't take anything with you. But you can sure send things on ahead of you. Let's go to the Lord in prayer and do that now. Father, you are our great provider. You are the Lord of heaven and earth. To you, everything belongs. And you are a good provider. We confess, O oh Lord, that we have misunderstood and misused the things that you have provided us. And we admit, Father, that we have used the things in this life, what we have, what we don't have, to rate your love for us, to rate your goodness to us, that we have made our lives about the abundance of our possessions, and we have sinned. That when we have lots of things, we forget you. And then when we don't have a lot of things, we blame you. Forgive us this idol worship. And look upon your son, Jesus, who is our only hope. And because of him and for his glory, forgive us. And Father, please make us your people faithful stewards faithful servants of your Son, as lovers of Christ, those who are truly satisfied in him. Receive our thanks this morning and receive our worship today. Amen. Please stand to your feet for the assurance of pardon. The end of our services, we having confessed our sin, seek from the Lord a word from him as an assurance that he has forgiven our sins and that we stand in him just and righteous. Today, your assurance of pardon comes from Psalm chapter 28, verses 6 and 7. Blessed be the Lord, for he has heard the voice of my pleas for mercy. The Lord is my strength and my shield. In him my heart trusts, and I am helped. My heart exalts, and with my song I give thanks to him.